Philip, thank you very much for joining me on the Forte podcast. It's an absolute pleasure to have you here. Thank you very much. I'm looking forward to it. And thank you very much for inviting me to your home. Not at all. It's a pleasure. So um, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's been around a year or so since you announced your retirement from the concert stage. Yes, I think it would be almost exactly a year. Yes. Yeah. How has uh, retirement been and has it been what you expect it to be? Well, retirement, uh, I think that means different things to different people. Uh, I mean, in a sense, one never retires. I've always been baffled by people saying, you know, what will I do when I retire? I feel as though, as I might have said, I, I've come out of a sort of 50-year lockdown. And I, I'm at a place where I think, well, what, what, what the hell was all that about? And now I can get on with all the things I really want to do. So retirement, for me, it's a, there's a sense of catching up on lost time. Um, so it, I'm finding every day an adventure. And what are those other interests? I think the other interests are chiefly wanting to write. I think it's really coming down to, to that. Um, uh, you know, after 50 years of, can it be 50 years? More even, of playing and of teaching, um, there's a sense, uh, a growing sense I've been feeling that, that um, I feel there. I want to say something. Now, I'm aware that many people want to say something, and there's probably a book in all of us. And why should I be any more interesting than anybody else? And, of course, I think I'm in danger of thinking, well, I don't know about you, but I find myself very interesting. But, I mean, there could be an an arrogance in that. And I think there probably is a conceit. But I I fully admit to probably having all those faults. Um, But it, it... I have had a rather extraordinary life, I think, in the in the people I've met and the sort of career I've had. And I've been um, putting down a few thoughts. Um, and one of them is, why Why did I embark on, on the career that I did? Or why did I attempt it? Um, you know, in, in all the years of teaching, especially in college teaching, because I've loved doing adult amateurism, really in particular, but I've done conservatory teaching for a long time. And I have to be honest and say that there are many people I have taught, and there, there have been quite quite a few, who really ought not to have been in, in a music college, and that they would have been better served if they just enjoyed their ability, such as it was, and in some cases, such as it wasn't, um, as an amateur, and just... In, in, you know, play in private and do private concerts for charity or the local church or whatever it may happen to be and not think of having a public career. And I've been thinking, you know, um, what, flowing from that, what do we mean by talent? So often I've been asked over the years, have you got anybody talented? Are you teaching anybody talented? You know, with great excitement. And... um, I feel I don't want to disappoint them and say, well, no, I haven't got anybody particularly interesting. So I say rather rather foolishly um, and, and provocatively, um, everybody's talented. Everybody's got something unique and something special. And talent isn't any one thing. 
it's a cocktail of things. You know, some people can have a talent for playing Chopin waltzes, but can't play Beethoven for a toffee. And it, you know, it's many, many, many things. Some people can't sight read, but can still play wonderfully. It, it's many, many things. And I think we need to have a much clearer idea of what we mean by talent. And just because you have an ability to do something doesn't mean to say you have to do it. So these these are things I've been thinking about and and my story is is of somebody who loved playing the piano as a boy um, and showing off for sure. But really it was not ever um, a sort of uh, I didn't think of being a pianist. I just enjoyed playing the piano. it was it was not a big deal. Uh, and then I came to enjoy model making, for example. I was a great DIYer, still am. And I love practical things. I like decorating. I like uh, um, all, all those kind of things. But also, I, I loved playing the squeeze box, the melodeon and the piano accordion when I was a boy. And we had a schoolmaster who was um, a Morris dancer. And he took it upon himself to start a boys' team of Morris Morris boys and I used to watch him in the playground struggling with this button key accordion uh, and trying to teach the boys and I asked him if I could have a go on the, on the thing and he lent it to me one weekend and I could play it by Monday and so I had the job of playing uh, for the boys and I loved that and I learned a whole lot of repertoire of English song uh, dances folk songs and dances that was a wonderful training and I loved this little melodium and decorating the, the, the tunes and sometimes putting them into different keys to give people a sort of lift. Um, and that also helped me in for pulse and steady rhythm and all these things. But I loved doing that. And then when I went to boarding school, um, the organ, which had already swung into view, was, was, was another great, great interest. Um, and all these things were sort of... And it wasn't really till I was about four... I never listened to music or had any particular interest. I listened to Russ Conway and Winifred Atwell, as I was mentioning earlier. I, I thought they were great. And I used to slow down the records. They were 45 RPM in those days. And you could slow them down to sort of six... I think it was 16. Our record player was 16, 45 and 33 and 78 if you wanted. So I could hear everything growling away, not too up to sort of down, listening to every passing note, every nuance, every inversion, seeing just now, oh, that's it then, playing up speed, and then, is that right? Is that what it was? And um, of course I was giving myself the best oral training you could possibly wish for. Um, I had pitch, which was quite handy. Um, and so I found all those things, uh, absolutely absorbing and I, I, I sort of I, I obviously impressed people with all this but I didn't sort of play Beethoven. I had no interest in playing Beethoven sonatas I did my grades and I had a wonderful teacher Marjorie Withers from the age of seven and she had been a laureate at the Royal Academy of Music in the 1920s and she just happened to be live in Jails Cross as I, I did They'd moved there, she and her husband, just before the war. Her husband, Bertie Withers, Herbert Withers, was a well-known cellist. And um, 
head of strings at the Royal Academy of Music, 30 years her senior. But they were, it was a happy marriage. And she was a great, a very great teacher. And I was so lucky, of course, teaching is so important as we know. And um, she gave me the sort of pieces that I loved. Um, I can remember York Bowen, the romp from the second suite. Um, I introduced Stephen Huff to York Bowen. I always like to flag that one up. Um, and uh, what was the other one? Uh, um, Grieg's Wedding Day, Trollhagen, and, and pieces like that. And, you know, I loved playing those because they were sort of virtuosic pieces. And I, I, I just enjoyed the physicality of playing them and the fact that I was giving pleasure to people. I think that gave me a buzz. But it didn't make me think, oh, I want to play more, I want to play more, or anything. Then I went back to my Russ Conway in, in private, keeping it slightly under wraps, although Mrs. Withers knew I was loved all that. Mm. Um, and so I went through my grades and, and did all the stuff dutifully. I was a, a sort of quite dutiful about that and um, obedient. And, and that, that carried forward into my career, which might come on to later. But But that's sort of my formation and it, it but when i went to boarding school um it was only when i was about 14 or 15 i think i went i was 14 it was when i was about 15 um the director of music roger bevan lovely man uh, was giving me an organ lesson one monday morning and he said to me um philip have you ever thought of being a pianist and you know i don't think i had it hadn't really crossed my mind. I was quite happy sort of doing what I was doing. Um, and it, it did sow a bit of a seed. And then my father and my aunt, his sister, still alive, 102 tomorrow, took me to the Royal Festival Hall to hear Julius Katchen, the great pianist. And he was playing, amongst other things, I think I actually went on two occasions, but the occasion I remember was when he played the Brahms Paganini Variations, which I was then learning. And I can remember, I can remember so vividly um, being in awe and bowled over, but feeling quite cross because he played it better than me. And um, <laughs> I'm not sure that this is the the ideal sort of way of hiring a young uh, young person to, for, for a musical career. But I just thought, I can do that. I did feel that quite strongly. I can do that. And then I think about that time, I was in, of all places, a tea shop with my mother in Beaconsfield, only a few miles from where we're sitting. And I said to my mother, I think I, I, think I want to become a pianist. It might have been just what I was feeling that afternoon. I was in the just, I think I want to become a pianist. <laughs> um, and so it all sort of things started to move from, from there. And I took grade eight in the piano. I took grade eight in the organ first at, at Downside Abbey on the great four manual Compton there. And got um, very high distinction in that. And then I took grade eight piano and got a, a lower distinction I, I got higher marks in the organ which I, I rather enjoy that I've been savoring that in my old age thinking mm, I wonder I wonder so that's uh, that's what happened and uh, 
And then I went, oh, I had a little audition with two visiting artists. They came to give a, a duo concert at Downside, my school, Downside Abbey. And it was the violinist Freddie Grinke, Frederick Grinke, and Geoffrey Prattley, the pianist, lovely man. And Roger wheeled me out and said, look, we've got this boy and um, he can play the piano and would you have any suggestions? So I sat down and did my party piece. And they said, oh, I think, uh, yes, well, how about Philip going to the academy and we suggest he study with Gordon Green. So it was as sort of simple as that at one level. Um, so that meant having an audition with Gordon going up to the Royal Academy which I see in a recent diary was January the 5th, 1964. I went to the Royal Academy and uh, met Gordon Green for the first time. And he was lovely, affable, trail of pipe smoke everywhere. I mean, he'd be arrested today. You wouldn't be allowed to do anything like that. Oh, happy days, you know. Um, the hall porter was liveried, I can remember. I think mean, it's just, just laughable when you think about it. And there was a professorial dining room and the students had a separate cafeteria. You know, apartheid between the two things. Absolutely marvellous, you know. I'd go back to that like a shot if I could. Um, and so, uh, so there I was at the Royal Academy of Music and that might be a good point at which to let you ask me another yes. question. <laughs> well, thank you for that uh, summarization. It's very helpful. Um, it's interesting that you mentioned and also read about you saying that there's a huge tendency for people to see talent as a, a necessary sort of push towards a particular career. Mm -hmm. If someone is very talented at something, yeah. it's almost as if they should do that or need to do that. Yeah. And it just sort of automatically equates talent with enjoyment it's just not necessarily the case sometimes you could be really good at something but not necessarily yeah naturally enjoy it, it i think this is very very interesting I've, I've just been um looking at an extraordinary documentary on van Cliven, hmm. and i've never really sort of followed his story i've of course i've known about him and, and his great success way back in what was it 1958 or 9 in moscow and all that but i've never really heard his playing or, or learning about it, but I did did happen to. And, you know, his, he had an extraordinary meteoric career, and yet somehow, and he played, as we all know, stupendously in every every way. I mean, just, just extraordinary. And yet, it didn't somehow, after a certain point, gel and develop. And I, I was thinking, knowing that I was going to chat to you today, and having thought about these things quite a lot in recent years. Um, this whole question of talent is a highly complex one, and I, I, I don't know whether it's been, it's, 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 it's addressed sufficiently. You know, it, teaching is, is, a, is about so many things, as, as a talent is about so many things. And I, I, thinking about myself, which is, you know, one, one can't help but do that, um, people like to own a bit of your talent. They want to have, be part of it. They want to, it's a sort of, um, 
it's very difficult. Uh, you know, I think I think teachers and parents have got to be immensely difficult, uh, careful about how they um, deal with young people who show talent, uh, ability, um, because ch a child will want to please, will want to show off. It's in the you know will by and large I think that's that's probably true, um, but that doesn't mean that. That is their destiny. I mean, it can in, in many instances, but I, I think there are many instances equally where it, where it doesn't, and I don't think people can spot the difference sometimes. Mm. And I certainly have, and I'm sure many people who might listen to this interview will know the immense damage that could be caused by a sort of subtle pressure, expectation, mm. and, and all these things. I mean, and I've certainly in my teaching experience had to pick up the pieces of I have to say quite well known names and, and, and who, who you know still doing good work but in private they're, they're really struggling and I think all this needs to be thought about very very much indeed and the whole business of training I think we, we, we need to think about the whole audition process needs to be fundamentally reviewed um but this business of owning 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 talent is, uh, I think, a very very dangerous thing. I've seen it time and time again. Mm. Anyway, I, I could talk more about it, but I think you better. Please do if you have. Well, it, it um, you see the, the whole arena of competition. Education has become so sort of competitive assessment culture. This this constant wanting to um, test and to uh, there's no sense of a, a continuum of study in tranquility. It's deadline after deadline. It's it's you know you you've got to do this by that time and all the rest. I mean that's going to that'll come in your life in the fullness of time, but in your study time. Period, which is probably three or four years. It's a precious time to hone your craft and to to learn experiment with repertoire. Not just to, I'm going to learn this piece, I'm going to learn it, and then I'm going to perform it. We all have to do that, but but also to explore, to pick things up, and to put them down, and to just you know have time, tranquility, space. Uh, it's and the the, the modern. Yeah, we, we, it, it just doesn't seem possible. And then on top of that, we have this wonderful, in many ways, revolution with technology, which is a great gift used correctly, but an absolute scourge if used incorrectly, and is so open to abuse. Uh, and, you know, the, the, the phone, the, the, this idea of being in constant communication, you know, always available, all the time. Um I think we've got to be very, very careful about this. And I remember Gordon Green, he used to say, and this is years ago, before all this had really taken off, the trouble today, and he was saying this 40, 50 years ago, is that too many people play too well, too soon. And I think you could say that somebody like Van Cliven would fit into that category, if you like. And uh, many, many, many others um, I certainly didn't fit into that category. I think I, pr I probably paid too well too late. <laughs> 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 uh, 
when I come to think about it, which is sort of bad. But actually, having said that, I feel I feel I want you to switch off the camera. I need to think about that. Um, but I think there may be a truth in that. Uh, we live in an age where we're not allowed to develop in our own time. We all have to develop. We're all sort of force-fed. Uh, everything has to be microwaved. I say to students, you know, microwave performances. I'm all for slow cooking. Microwave has its place and wonderful. It's a wonderful accessory, provided you have the, the convection oven as well. Hmm. And I think I, I think those are things to be be borne in mind. Um, but, but competition, this this idea of competing. Um, I think can affect the way people play. If you've got this, the, the eye on on the on achievement, prize, recognition, rather than your ear on the music. And um, I've become more and more interested. I, I think I said earlier that I have a horror of noise, um, and I count music. I put music in, into that category. I think one, well, f for myself, I music is not music if I am not in the right mood. It's just a noise when you turn that noise off, you know. And it might be a Mozart symphony, it might be anything. Where it, 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 it just, and th this business of silence, and, and I like to say that music is a tapestry of sound woven in a loom of silence. And it's like a painting which can only exist on a blank canvas. Otherwise, it's nothing. And, you know, I, th I, I sometimes hear myself saying to a student or telling a student, um, well done after they played something, but I, I haven't heard enough silence in your performance. Enough silence, you know, it's, it's, it hasn't got enough air, it, you know, I, it doesn't breathe, it's all too compressed, it's too anxious. Um, so this attitude was it something you've always had or was it something you no I can't truthfully say I've, I, I, I think it's probably always been there at some point uh, but it's taken the form of, of uh, what form has it taken it's taken the form of always enjoying being on my own in, in silent places particularly churches or monasteries come to that um, uh, because I think silence is it's not it's not noiselessness I think it's in silence that you hear everything it's <laughs> a powerful statement well I think I think it's I think it's true and coming back to the business of noise um, and practicing for example I can remember as a student uh, and I, it, it used to make me cringe and it still does uh, I used to overhear students saying, oh, I've done uh, five hours practice today. Mm. And then the, another student said, oh, I've done six. You know, mm. um, And I think, oh, I mean, now to me, and I, Ashkenazi said to me, this is one of my lines, I can say, look you in the eye, Ashkenazi said to me when I was with him on one occasion, if anybody has to practice more than four hours a day, they're in the wrong business. And Shura Chikaski, whom I knew very well, I could um, 
tell you a few stories about him. Mm-hmm. Uh, he used to say that he practiced four hours to the second. And he meant that. Um, and I, I think people practice far too much. You know, they make too much noise, wear out the piano, and don't listen to a, a thing they're doing. Um, it sounds rather harsh, but I, I, I do feel that. Um, yes. I was thinking of, of Van Clyburn, who I saw last night for the first time. And he said he, in an interview about 15 years ago, he, um, he said that he uh, practiced with the lid of the piano closed. Well, I've always done that. Um, Mazevich always had, because I had his pianos, and we'll come to that later, practice with the piano closed. But I go down the corridors of college, and these tiny little rooms, these far too big a piano in them anyway, lid full open, and the student crashing away sort of giving themselves a phantom concert. You know, they're not, they're not in a practice room. They're in the Albert Hall or the Festival Hall. And, you know, you just cannot hear the subtlety of playing and colouring and the nuancing of pedalling. And if you're doing that, it just cannot be possible. And if there's a choice of two instruments, for example, a, a Steinway and a non-Steinway, and you have a choice, you can be sure that people will practice on the Steinway. Sure. And I always used to make a point in my room of not giving the lessons on the Steinway. I always gave it on the, the other piano, and I won't mention the name. Um, because I always say to people, you know, you've got to make a Zender upright, a Bentley upright sound like a Model D e Steinway. And unless you can do that, I don't want you to play a Model D e Steinway. You know, it's, it's, you know, I want to, if you've developed your hearing and your ability to, to, to get the sounds you want, you'll be able to get them anything but it's we live in a world that that, that I don't know it, it seems extraordinary to be you want to be a racing driver and you start learning on a Rolls Royce seems to be the wrong way to do it yes <laughs> so do you think technology had a big part to play in that in this change in oh yes for sure I mean when you when you look back I mean even a recording it's extraordinary. I mean, the, the real greats, the great performers and great singers of the early part, mid part of the last century, they wouldn't have heard so many great artists in their day. They would have had to go to concert halls or take a train mm. somewhere, or mm. once or twice a year they might have gone to, you know, when they were young, hear a great artist. Of course, now we just flick a switch. But, and I wonder whether that accounts for the fact that in many ways we don't have I mean where are the Cortos and the Paderewskis and the Shorachakaskis where are they well they don't exist and they can't exist because um, every person who learns an instrument be it violin or voice or, or whatsoever they will have many recordings that they've heard and a distillation of all of that whereas the Chikaskis and the thing, they didn't they had to. They had one or two, well, more than that, experiences in their life of perhaps hearing a great performance and, and had their teacher, and their own imagination and resources. And we don't now. We don't have that. We we we're, we're too. It's a, we live in a noise that's too much is thrust at us. There's too, the tyranny of choice. 
I don't know why it is that people think you've got freedom of choice. I have. I, it, it's it free, It's an absolute tyranny. You know, you go into a large supermarket. Um, they, I, it, and in America, it's, it's just. Uh, and even here, I, I go into a big ASDA, and I want a tube of toothpaste. And I go to the tooth, and it's a whole a whole corridor, a whole. You know, of every flavor and color and size and uh, and then if I want a toothbrush I, you get these highly engineered ones and I wouldn't even know how to work <laughs> um, uh, it's most extraordinary or, or a bottle of water which I don't do now but you can't eat, I mean you get lime and this and so I just want a bottle of water <laughs> and a packet of crisps but you can get vanilla crisps and cheese you know, and in, I just stumble out in confusion. I just don't, don't know what to get, so I don't get anything at all. Mm. Just go, if there's a corner shop, I'll go there and get whatever's on the shelf. The tyranny of choice. I always remember when I did the um, Moscow camp competition in 1978. And uh, it was a wonderful experience. There were three British pianists, uh, Christian Blackshaw, another Gordon Green student, a friend, um, me, and the young Terence Judd, God rest his soul, because he died not so very long after that, in 1978. And um, we were quite popular. It was, it was rather rather pleasant. Um, and I can remember the effect of going to Moscow, and it was still very, very much a communist country then. I think it was, was it? Brezhnev era. Around that time, probably. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, um, and I can remember staying in this huge, great modern hotel, Hotel Rossier, which has actually been demolished. But it was a great 1960s sort of swish Soviet hotel. But I mean, it, it, it looked, if you half shut your eyes, it looked, you know, like the, like the Dorchester. But, you know, if you just... The light switches sort of—you turn it on, it fell off, you know, and that kind. Of, um, and you turn on the television, you got an electric shock. You know, it, it was all of that. Um, but a huge restaurant and wonderful starch linen, a, a bevy of waiters, all all sort of clustered together in a corner, and uh, a, a menu and all this. And you had to wait hours to be served. And when they eventually came, and you'd made up your mind, you you looked through the menu and, and you just pointed that and yet. And so out of this huge menu, there's only one thing that they had. And I thought they could have perhaps made it a bit simpler. Um, but what I liked about that is that there was no choice. You just had what was on for the day. And the menu that they gave you was, well, it was, it was probably what they might have got through in a year, perhaps. But it just happened to be that. And in the shop windows, you know, pyramids of pilchard, tins of pilchards and all the rest of it. And... I know it was extreme, but I found that enormously um, attractive. And also the fact that there was no traffic other than um, taxis, trolleybuses, and the occasional Trabant, which was a sort of people's car. And I, I loved all that. But just coming back to music, you know, it, it's this business of, of choice. You know, I, th I think... It, it is it is an absolute tyranny, and 
in study, you know, who you're going to study with, what conservatory do you want to go? I mean, there's so many choices. There's so many choices of what course you do on. Well, in my day, it was just just the one course, dead simple, and the way. And now, it's just I, I, I mean, even when I was teaching, I didn't know what I was teaching. <laughs> what, what, you know, I just uh, in desperation towards the end of my teaching career, I used to ask the students, "Well, what's on the syllabus? What, what, what do you, what do you want me to teach you?" <laughs> Um, because it was so confusing, and I, I, I don't know why we've we've in in this era why we've we've got to this point of complexity of living, um, and uh, accounting this accountable culture. You hear it in the news. You, hardly a news bulletin goes by when there's not somebody or a politician or somebody says something, and an apology is demanded immediately. Or can you? Can you apologise for that offensive statement? Or twenty-five years ago, you did a Nazi salute to somebody, and you know we're not going to invite you to the. I mean, it's it. We've gone sort of mad about it. We're getting onto all sorts of subjects other than music. Perhaps that's really what I want to do. But anyway, ask me another. Is is the tyranny of choice sort of like a hindrance on one's attention and time? Oh yes. Of course it is. Tyranny of choice. Are you a person who doesn't like to waste time? No. That's an interesting observation. No, I don't. But but um, to get back to the matter in, in hand, this business of why did I become a, a musician, um, this is going back, um, I, I felt... I, I did feel a sort of... Um, a drivenness a desire to to play certain works. There were certain works I wanted to play. I wanted to play Rachmaninoff, Second Piano Concerto. I, um, particularly that, really. And then I was asked to play the Greek, and I enjoyed that. But I, I always sort of, I, I didn't have any, I didn't have much initiative. I, I liked it when people told me what to do. And there was an occasion in 1973 at the Royal Academy when... Um, and I'd been there for about four or five, four years by then. And I was asked by the warden um, whether I would do the Paganini Rhapsody for a, a, a youth orchestra in Leicester, the Leicestershire School Symphony Orchestra. Uh, that was the good news. The bad news, it was in three weeks' time because somebody had perhaps fallen ill. So I was, that was the beginning of my career of fill-in folk. <laughs> Um, and I've had a very big career of filling in and standing in. Um, and I remember getting the score, which I didn't have, and learning it with great excitement and pleasure. Um, I think I must have got a record of it and listened to it and thought, ooh, wow, I like this. And I worked at it and, and got it, must have got it to quite a good point, and um, had a wonderful person to help me, Valerie Dixon, uh, she now lives in America, and she, she married Stephen Savage, the, the pianist Stephen Savage, and she was um, a local teacher as well, and she played the orchestral part for me, and we crashed through it oh, many a time. And that became a, a staple piece of my career, and I recorded it, of course, later with the Royal Philharmonic. But I remember going on tour with the Leicestershire School's uh, Orchestra and uh, in France, and that was a wonderful, a wonderful time of, 
it was wonderful being with them. Well, a bit, they were all a bit younger than me. I mean, I was, what, 23, and they were 13, 14, 15. Ragged me because cause of the way I spoke and, the, and all that, uh, which I used to get quite a bit. And um, we had tremendous fun, and I really loved that. And I learnt, I think, qu quite a lot of things. Firstly, that I much preferred playing with other people than on my own. And that I loved concertos. Not because of being the soloist, that, that was the, the least pleasant side of it. It was the fact that I was, we're all in this together. And I've always felt that with concertos. I've never felt the soloist. I've always felt, you know, come on, let's see what we can do with this. And I'll, I'll do the best I can, kind mm. of thing. Um, and I think that that was very fortuitous. And then about the same time, Simon Rattle, who was a um, pupil of Gordon Green and also a fellow Liverpudlian, because Gordon Green came from Liverpool. Um, he then uh, conducted the Merseyside Youth Orchestra, and he um, Simon asked me to do uh, Rack 3 with them. Rachmaninoff Third Piano Concerto, for those listeners who don't know what Rack 3 is. Um, viewers, I should say. So I, I, I learnt rack, rack 3 for that. And that was quite a learn. Um, where was I living in 1970? I was still living at home at Jazz Cross, yeah. And I then had Mazevich's piano. There's a story which I'll come to. But I, I, I mugged up Rack 3. But I, I didn't, I mean, it was, it was, I did the best I could with the equipment I had and the experience I had. And we did it. I think, did we do it three times? I'm, I'm quite muddled. It was Rack 2 I did with the Merseyside Youth Orchestra and Simon. It was Rack 2. And that went quite well. And shortly after, he asked me to do Rack 3. That was it. That was it. But what I'm saying is about that time, I was doing concertos mm -hmm. early on. And it... That became the mainstay of my career and repertoire because I was asked to give recitals, which I find a bit of a pain. But I always I did them, and I did my Wigmore Hall in 1970-1974, which was sponsored by the Arts Council for having won the 1973 National Federation of Music Societies Award. Uh, and one of the prizes was a Wigmore Hall, a sponsored Wigmore Hall. So we're jumping around a bit. Uh, butterfly mind. Um, but that was significant because it set me on the course of, of what was to be a really a concerto career with a few recitals thrown in which were always, um, I won't say difficult because I hope I did them successfully, but I didn't enjoy giving recitals, and mm. I don't enjoy giving recitals. You've had a phenomenal well, concerto career, actually. Mm. I think you mentioned with um, Murray McLuckin in an interview you did with him, I think you said something like a, a concerto a month for a year? No, I don't know. Though. We're going to that period, which I talk about really probably too much. Yes, yes, it was It was an extraordinary period. I, I mean, we're jumping forward a bit to... Uh, 1980s that's quite a bit 
bit further forward and that was um yes i was mentioning the moscow competition a moment ago the three content contenders i didn't get through to the third round i got through to the second round uh christian and terence got through to the third round they got one round further um and I always remember on my birthday, my 28th birthday, June 28th, 1978, I was walking through Red Square, having just come back from the jury room when we'd all been told who got into the semi-finals. And I was on my own walking through Red Square, I think Revolution Square it was, to back to the hotel, thinking I'm 28 today and I was going back to London and I had no concerts in the day and a bit of private teaching and it was quite a you know quite a quite a time quite, quite a moment of anxiety and I had an experience out of that moment of anxiety I felt it was a sort of transcendental moment of 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 um, joy it was a sense of just I was feeling actually really rather I just felt as I some unseen force was lifting me up. It's extraordinary. Um, I mean, I've never taken drugs or anything, but I could imagine it was. I just I felt suddenly taken out of myself. Anyway, I came back to London. The phone rang, and it was I think my then agent saying um, I had a phone call from the BBC asking whether I'd like to do a prom. Uh, just out of the blue. Um, and uh, it was going to be the John Ireland Piano Concerto with the BBC Scottish and the, the young uh, up-and-coming conductor Simon Rattle. So it was a nice thing to do because Simon had used me quite a bit. And so all that sort of started. And what's more, the icing on the hill was televised. So you can imagine what I felt. I mean, it was, it was extraordinary career break but like so many career breaks I had I don't think I made the best of it because I was I was sort of thrilled and embarrassed in equal measure oh not me no, I just oh, I can't give it to somebody else you know I'm not good enough kind of thing and I think that's always slightly dogged me although I've tried to concede it and um, anyway we did it and it, it went well and Robert Ponsby the then director of Radio 3 and The Proms, who only recently died and became a very, very dear friend, um, was pleased. And um, I had a run of about 12 proms after that, another two televised. So the, the BBC really took me up. But that initially, I think, had come from the BBC piano competition of four years, five years earlier, the 1974 piano competition which uh, transmogrified into the Young Musician of the Year, but it started out as the BBC Piano Competition, in which I was a controversial second. Um, and on the jury was Fanny Waterman and Cyril Smith, probably a name you don't remember, uh, Cyril Smith, Phyllis Selick, Colin Horsley, Vlado Palmutar, Palmutar and... Was it Rosalind Turek, or was she? No, she came later on Leeds. So, and I, 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 um, I think it's I, I, 
obviously made some impression on the BBC because I did the Pagani Rhapsody in the last round of that competition. So I, uh, anyway, so I did the um, Ireland Concerto, and then that was nineteen seventy nine, and then in nineteen eighty, I changed agent to Mina K, K artists, and there you have to change wheels because um, my life took 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 another another turn. She was dynamic, young, and she and her twin brother Tony ran this young, buzzy agent with all the latest technology. Faxes had just come in. And it was faxes, fax that. Nina was faxing all over the place. I should have called myself Philip Fax. <laughs> um, you know, it really was just amazing. And she had a knack of getting the dates, and big ones, big ones. And the orchestra, orchestral dates started absolutely, you know, um, coming in like anything. And... Um, it was very heady time, and I thought, well, this is it. You know, this is what, what being a concert pianist is about. And I didn't think, it didn't cross my mind to plan seasons or repertoires or anything. I just got, you know, a phone call Nina. Um, she might say, oh, do you know the, um, what might it be, the Delius Piano Concerto? And I, I would say, perhaps I might say yes, and quickly go out and buy the music, you know. <laughs> and you know, do that kind of thing. And it, it came to a point where in 1983, yes, I had another prom. It was the Chopin E minor. And the BBC had also asked, asked me to understudy Claudio Arrau, uh, who was then getting, getting on and had a tendency to cancel. But I, I was selected to understudy him for the prom that he might not do. So I had my own prom for sure and possibly another one. But it so happened that I, I'd never played the shop any mine in my life. I had a very busy 1983-2-3 season and I, I remember I'd be, I was on a duo tour with Christopher Warren Green, violinist, who was then the the concertmaster, the, the first violinist in the Philharmonia. And we'd been in Bulgaria for a tour. And that was in, in uh, what was it? I, anyway, it was about June or, or so, 1983. I, <coughs> excuse me. I came back to London and to Campbell Road, where I was living then. And I had, I looked at my calendar and I had five weeks, five clear weeks to learn the Chopin minor. And I, by then I'd had a phone call from the BBC saying, you're on. <laughs> um, so I had five weeks, uh, Chopin minor, and the Strauss burlesque, and the Weber Konzertstück. And even as I say the words now, I think, is this a true story? <laughs> and I had the studio, I'd just finished it. I think I showed you how it looked in those days. And it was a very hot, muggy few weeks of summer. And I can remember in, I was packing my underpants and a T-shirt. It was so hot, sweating away in the studio. And I set two, and I gave myself three weeks to learn it all and then play it all through to, to invited audience in, in, the, in that studio. And I did it. 
and I sort of wobbled through the whole thing. I, 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 who would have played the second piano? Hamish, I think, would have. Hamish Milne um, would have. Uh, I'm sure he did because he and I all played together a lot. And um, I think I got one or two others. It, uh, Craig Shepherd was around. He was a great mate of mine in those days. Yes, I think it might have been Craig. Um, and I, I did it in three weeks uh, from memory so that I had the feeling of I've, well, I've got two weeks. I've already played it in public, played them all. I've got two weeks before going on live. And so that's what I did. But I, I was aware then, Anthony, as I am still, that I would never be the same again. <laughs> and that if this is what being a concert pianist involves, I, I, it's not for me. I can remember feeling that, but I had to put those those feelings, really pack them away tight, in order to to to, to bring it all off, which I did. And I've got the recordings and I've got the reviews. Although it's very interesting, the recordings, the reviews, are very mixed on the Chopin, but not on the Strauss and the the um, uh, Weber, uh, which were were glowing and absurd really I mean amazing but the the, Stra the Chopin I had two I, I often quote these to to students to cheer them up especially when they get bad exam results all this really. uh, because one review in the Guardian was, was glowing and another review was you know where my sound was ringing and short and short the other one sounded like breaking glass you know so what one person hears is not what another person hears. We all know that to be true. Um, but I think uh, I think they were quite perceptive reviews. And one of them was by Nick Kenyon, actually, who was then a, before his BBC his BBC days. He 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 was it was a very good searching review. But anyway, I I was doing all that, and that was in 1983. And then of course it, it went on. It went on. I was recording, and I was getting a reputation for doing British concertos. I did a lot of British concertos. Um, and, and so it went on. So the BBC was, was a very, very big and important part of my life. Um, uh, and recording, I was hoping, would become a big part of my life, but never did. And I've often reflected on that, because um, I, I did the Pagney Rhapsody and the Two and then I did Chike One and Chike Three for classics for pleasure. And I did Chopin waltzes and the two sonatas. Well, the three I know, but B minor, B flat minor, Delius concerto. Not much more. But I, I really loved recording. But it, it, I don't know whether I mismanaged it or my agents. I don't know. But it never happened. And uh, I am I'm a little sad about that because I was more comfortable in the in the concert, in the recording studio than anywhere else. Why was that? I think, and I, I I have reflected on this an awful lot. I I think my career. I mean, there was there was a short space of time, and I'm talking about the the time that it was, at a very big 
at quite a peak. Um, I was also going to Italy and, and things were developing there. But there was a sense in which I always felt, I won't say a fraud quite, it's, it wouldn't be as, uh, I, I knew I could do it, but that, not that I was not worthy of it, but um, that, that I was, although I was in the thick of it, I was pulling away from it too simultaneously. Um, a sort of an embarrassment. I can always remember the sense, even as a young boy, although I put on a great show, and it's often been said in my reviews, if you see them, and Philip Fogg, natural showman, you know, it's always, it's, that's always the thing they latch on. And I, I think, yes, I think that is true in many ways, but I also think that showmanship was, was a, a facade, an elaborate uh, mechanism to conceal the sort of shrinking person beneath, uh, sort of pulling away from it all the time and yet trying to give the impression that I was doing quite the reverse. Mm. And this is why I think um, I'm very concerned in my teaching, I have been very concerned, of not pushing people beyond what I think is appropriate for them, not what their parents might want or that their previous teacher might have expected. I'm interested in what I think is going on inside them. You know, the moment you put your hands on a keyboard or pull a string across a bow, make any, you know, you're, you, 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 you cannot actually conceal anything. And when I listen to my performances of the past, of this period, I, I'm, I, I'm struck sometimes by my goodness who's that and is it me my, you know on the one hand and on the other hand I can hear what I'm I can hear in a sense I won't say artificiality but I I, I can hear me I can hear me it's sort of the two me's it's it's an extraordinary thing that the the, um, the uh, not quite conflict but the the uh, contrast between the the extrovert and the the, the, the introvert, and uh, I, I think that was, but I think that it might not be just me who has this, but it's it's. Uh, I found that I won't say I found it difficult, but I think that the maintaining that kind of tension uh, caught up with me, uh, particularly with my memory, because I was memorizing so much so quickly. And I really was. So there was a. I did learn nine concertos in nine months. I remember I totted it up, all from memory. Um, well, this this comes at a cost. I mean, I'm not a genius. I have to work hard. I haven't got a photographic memory. I'm not like John Ogden or, or I'm sure Chikaski, who both. I mean, you've got to be autistic to to to. to quite serious and I think this is another thing with performing you know you've got to be a, a bit of a monster really sort of you know when you think of the great performers they're all monsters um, and it, it came at great cost and, and it came to a head really when I was about 40 I, I would say so I went on quite quite a while at a very high level um, so that's why going back to an earlier conversation how I've 
I've loved teaching. I've always loved teaching. It's never been fair to me. I've, I've taught right from the from the beginning. So I've always loved to help people and enable them. Um, because I've had to do exactly the same thing for myself. And I don't make any distinction between teaching somebody the complexities of rack three or whatever it may be, or just playing two consecutive notes in a five-finger exercise. It just, I, I, I don't make any distinction. Perhaps I should, but I don't. The sense of achievement of somebody playing that or playing fairly Elise evenly for the first time in their lives is the joy on their face if you give them a little trick or an exercise just to help things along is immense. And that's, that's far greater satisfaction than, than doing it oneself. Mm. So um, there are a lot of things to think about. You know, performing is a very, very complicated thing. Uh, my dear aunt has always taken the view that, well, it can't be difficult because you can do it. Well, you know, end of discussion. Well, I so it's the end of the discussion. Well, you can do it. So it's easy for you. But it isn't. I don't think it's easy for anyone. Um, I think there are a few people absolutely born to it. But I think it, it, is, it is a tough, a tough business. Um, and I think you've got to be doing it for the right reasons. The, the, the psychological, emotional, musical wiring has all got to be absolutely in place. And I can, I can spot a mile off, I would say, when it isn't. Having to struggle with my own pretty mixed up wiring. Um, so it's very interesting. So when I said to you earlier, I feel I've got something to say. I mean, you asked me what I'm doing, having announced my withdraw from public performing it's this in fact I said to you earlier you put the mic in front of me I didn't know what I was going to say and I'm going to be very interested in what I'm going to say and I'm actually am because <laughs> it's coming out in a different way to what I might have I didn't know I wasn't prepared for anything but it's so much in my mind it's such a big thing I and I think without wanting to be conceited I think it's such an important thing to get across to people is that love of music and ability to do it is great, but there's a lot more to it than that. What was the, if there was, what was the underlying motivation to work so hard? Because very recently, I think it was about three years ago, um, I was sleeping. And in the darkness, I had this very lucid dream about my own mortality. And that night just changed my life because I realized that I had a very finite time in this hour. Not only that, it was also coupled with very high expectations for my family. Being the eldest and being, being the sort of not victim but say the the subject of a lot of investment emotional investment and financial investment for me to do well so this this pressure from that and also the pressure of living life in in the best way possible sort of developed this quixotic attitude of wanting to do as much as you can in the time that you have on this hour and this is why I, I work so hard. This is why I do this. And this is why I, I try to network with as many people as possible. And 
sometimes that can have a drastic effect on the way I deal with my other parts of my life, so my personal life. But and I get some friends tell me you should you should slow it down. You should give some time off. You should have some days where you do nothing. But then I say to them, well, I don't I don't really want to because. A, it's not making me unhappy, working. And B, I don't have much time on this earth to do the things I I want to do. I think for me that's one of the strongest factors. This quixotic quixotic attitude of trying to achieve as much as I can on this earth, to squeeze as many amps, to take some a quote from Apollo thirteen that I just watched yesterday, and to squeeze as many amps from this life as possible to get me home, and. Uh, that's one of my motivations. I, I wondered if you resonated with any of that. I think it's a very, I, I think that's very understandable, and I, 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 I would, I, I, I share that. I think it, I think that it, it, it changes as, as life goes on. But, but, um, I mean, I think, I think that's that's good, and, and I think it's wholesome and natural. You know, when you're young, that's what you want to do. Um, I'm just trying to think back. It's so hard to think back, you know, over fifty years, from where one is now to to where one was, because one can edit one's thoughts in the light of how you think now, hmm. and that, that, that's why I think it's it's very, very dangerous to say, you know, I thought this at the time, and I thought that, you know, I, I'm not quite sure what I thought at the time, and you know, there's a lot of guessing, but but. I have fortunately kept my diary, so I can. I can. I, I you know. I was, and I did. I did go on retreats. And I did go away, and I did go for walks. And, and, and I, but possibly not enough. And, and then, of course, you've got the pressure of earning, having to living and all the rest of it. So there's just the sheer, the sheer business of that. But I, th- I think, and it's easy for somebody of my age to say to you of your age that you know we had more time. And I don't think that's probably necessarily true. I. I I do think we possibly had less. We didn't have the social media, which is which is a huge pressure. Actually, um, I, th- I think that has significantly changed everybody's lives. Um, you know, we didn't go around prodding phones all the time. We actually, I think, there were more opportunities for being on your own or being quiet. And I think there, there are not so many now. You've really got to make the space, and there's everything to encourage you not to every distraction. It's very addictive, all this stuff. I mean, I find myself doing it. To my horror, I'm doing it too. Gazing, <laughs> yeah, I think. Um, so um, I, I don't think you need to castigate yourself for that. I, I think the awareness of it is, 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 is good enough. If you're aware that you're, you might be pushing things, and, and just see if you can occasionally just think, well, I... This afternoon, I'm going to keep free and just just um, do something totally different, or, or just just you know, if you want to be religious about it, but just you know that kind of thing. I do think doing something completely different uh, is important, and it's amazing how we don't we don't think the obvious. For example, you know, I I, I think one of the most dangerous things in practice is repetition. Uh, people just seem to have. Uh, Gordon Green used to talk about developing a box of tools, like a craftsman, you know, master craftsman, be it a, a, a carver or you can imagine all these chisels. He used to say, "Well, this beautiful 
velvet-lined box and a chisel for every single curlicue on that intricate wood carving, you know, different thing, all beautifully oiled and ready. You know. And that's your, your practicing kit, you know, it's got to be like that. And I feel, and I like to tease people that, you know, what's, it, what's in your practicing box? What, 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 what are your tools there? And actually, they haven't got a box at all, let alone any tools. But if they have got a container of any sort, there'll be a sort of blunt screwdriver that doubles as a chisel and a repeat button, <laughs> just a repeat button. Uh, and, you know, well, what else is there? You know, and that's it. That's it. Um, so you only have to go down any corridor of any college and you'll hear the piano being bashed loudly and repeat, 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 repeat. And I've always been worried about this because, I mean, repetition is part of it. It has to be. But it's what you repeat, why you repeat, how you repeat. And the dynamic level at which you repeat. And I, I, when I hear people practicing, it sounds, it sounds as though there's a sort of panic in it franticness a drivenness and if they do get it right whatever getting it right may be it it's becomes addictive well, i got it right i'll just do it again to make sure it's right and uh, that was good and i'll just just uh, i'll just be sure and it goes on right to the minute of walking onto the exam or this your friend well you know this is this is this is and it sounds like that it's frantic you know get it right get it right get it right. go into the exam you get it wrong um Gordon Green used to say, you must practice, you mustn't practice so you get it right. You must practice so you never get it wrong. Mm. Um, it sounds so simple, but it's, it's, it's a lifetime sort of thing to achieve that. But you can learn, and with good counselling, to work on one's vulnerabilities and see, anticipate where difficulties, problems may arise. Take nothing but nothing for granted. Every finger must not only know its duty, but it must know the duties of all its companions. And I find that people just play, so their fingers are all prima donnas, they're just doing their own thing, get out of my way, it's my go. And they've got no sense of collaboration. Collaborative, choreographic fingering just seems to, doesn't seem to exist. You know, um, you play one finger and I say, well, what are the others doing? Well, they, they don't have to play yet. Yes, but wh where are they? Are they in transit? They're always in transit. Where, where's the flight path? Where's it going to? Why is your hand closed up when you play the second finger when it's actually got to be up there? You know, not, but people don't know. And you can do that kind of practice in silence. Hmm. And furthermore, you can do it away from the keyboard. And I, I think a lot of teaching is too many words too much fiddling around, too much noise, teachers putting circles in students' scores and wavy lines and shooting arrows. And instead of just saying, well, now let's, let's talk about this, sitting on a table like you, you and I are now, and uh, let's talk this through. What would you do in that bar? Oh, I don't know, but, uh, you know. And you begin to see things and you begin to hear things that you don't when you're actually at the piano. So I've got this sort of theory that one could do that one can do good teaching and good learning and good performing without noise, without sound. You know, if you, if you, if you, if you know what you want up here, 
it's going to be far less of a problem down there. But people try and do the so they hear it they hear it wrong before it gets right. I always say hear it right, right at the beginning. And do it right, right at the beginning. Instead of oh I played an F natural, correct it in the moment. So I've heard two things. There's confusion. And yet people do that hours and hours of doing this, sort of correcting in the moment. Instead of thinking, oh, I'm gonna get this right, and then stopping when they feel uncertain and holding it. Don't stop and lift your hands. You've covered your tracks. You've covered your footprints. You've got to see the footprints. You've got to see the journey. You know, all this sort of stuff. Well, you can do that away from the piano. You're grinning from ear to ear. Yeah, well, it's, yeah. And it's peaceful, you see. You can, you can, you can do things in tranquility and pleasure instead of anxiety. And shoulders up. And, and posture and all these things, it, it's, it's, it's an extraordinary thing. But these things are not addressed. And I've got distinguished colleagues, I've wonderful musicians and experienced performers even. Uh, you know, if I taught the p piano to beginners, I'd do away with primers, all these things. Ghastly picture of a keyboard, you know, and a, a finger with one, two, three, four, you know. And that, the, 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 the most tyrannous note invented by God or man, middle C, which if I could abolish middle C, I would. Um, and that's the first finger that the poor old thumb gets to know. Well, I, I just wouldn't, I wouldn't do any of that. I would say, what does a child do when it goes to a piano for the Caesar piano? It, it does this, you know, and, 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 and all the rest of it. And provided it hasn't got jam on its fingers, I say, go ahead, you know, go on. Let, now, tell me a story, you know, tell me a story. I don't mind, just snap, 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 it's fine, it's fine by me. The whole of the keyboard, black notes, white notes, the whole damn lot. None of this, uh, um, Enjoy it. Did you enjoy that? Yes. There we go. Then, then you can see how the child responds, and then you can perhaps sit it, sit him or her on your knee or whatever, and say, "Well, now, can you see some notes that look the same, and that might play a, a black note?" And say, "Can you, do you see another one that looks just like that, like Kit Kats? You know, the three bits of chocolate, you know, that kind of thing." Make games and just say that they completely. The whole keyboard becomes their friend in their first encounter. But this keyboard apartheid of the blacks and the whites, you know, it's, it's, it's extraordinary. It still goes on. It baffles me. And the other thing I would do is get a child or even an adult or student, it doesn't have to be a child, is just put your hands on the keyboard and any cluster of notes or even one note, just one note, just put it and hold it till you can't hear it anymore. Just hold it right to the very end of its last dying gasp. And hold it, don't grab it, don't have your shoulder, just hold it and feel completely comfortable as the sound fades. That'll be lesson one. <laughs> but just never that, just I've got to do a tune straight away. And I, I, would, I, would, I think I would say, now before we do a tune, we've got to learn to listen. Has that sort of approach to music um, influenced you anywhere other in life apart from music? The way you think about how to practice. So I'm not. I'm not quite clear. Um, 
has what influenced me? So the your your approach to practicing. Yes. How to get better at something. Mm. This methodical way of getting better. Does it apply to other things? Yes, yes. Um, possibly. I'm not sort of... I am aware that I've forgotten... For example, if you get those flat pack things, you know, with building furniture with tables of coffee, which I've... did a whole kitchen that uh, one house I had. And, and I, I have to be very, very methodical and put out every screw and every nut and every washer. You know, and when I'm doing, for example, I've just come back from New Zealand and I built a greenhouse for my wife, which I loved, out of junk wood from the dump. And I have to be very, very organized with my tools. You know, if I use a saw once, I put it back immediately. Now, this is a touch of OCD, I think, in some ways. Um, but I don't see myself as particularly OCD, but I can, you know, one's got to be honest. Um, but I, I, I do like to know where things are because I'm very scatterbrained, I think. Curiously enough, I think people who are untidy often have tidy minds and people who are very tidy have untidy minds. And I think I've, I, I am tidy, but I think my mind is absolutely chaotic. But my brother has got an extraordinary tidy mind but he's not as tidy as I am. <laughs> um, and, and so I think, uh, yes, it does does rub off on mm. other things. But I keep on coming back to really the thing that ha has become quite an issue for me is sound, noise, and silence. Because um, music is, is so much part of all that. And I had, a, you know, I can't, well, I, I don't, teach at college anymore but I, I'm always happy to hear we've just mentioned it you know people play through and I do I've learned to zoom and all that with, with just using a laptop I'm not clever with all these things that you have um, but I can do sufficient um, and I find that it, it rather suits what I'm talking about for example if, if you were to do anything play to me I I would suggest that you might write down page, line, and bar of anything you want to talk about specifically. And it could be any issue at all, phrasing, fingering, whatever. Um, and send me a, a scan of your score. Then I can look at it and then we can have a Zoom and, and go through it on that, that basis. And I find having it in that mm -hmm. sort of formulaic way saves, you know, this. It, you have to be... You can't waste time on these things. You've got to get it absolutely right. That's that's a way I found quite helpful. And the other one is for people to pre-record pre something and send it in a file, and then I can make comments, and then I write an email, um, or perhaps do a Skype, or that kind of thing. But I, I like this business of um, working in bits. And I always say to students, and this might be helpful or might not, um, you know, a student might in the past say, oh, can I cancel my lesson because I'm not ready? And I say, no. Um, that is, I don't want you to be ready. I'm, I'm not interested. Well, when you're ready, well, that's great. Uh, hurrah. You know, that's, you needn't come if you're ready. 
it's when you're not ready that the work is interesting. I don't want to have a be presented with a with a finished product, something's ready. I want to be finished. I want to go into the engine room with all the oily rags and steam and mess and not, and not, you know get, see what's going on. It's like maybe baking a cake. I want to know what's in the ingredients. I don't need a bit more salt and a bit more of this and a bit more of that. And uh, let's. Uh, Mix it next week, and perhaps, and then when we're both happy, you can put it in the oven. Then it'll be ready. And I always find that you know, when people, uh, students say, "I've been practicing an awful lot this week," I say, "I'm very sorry to hear that." <laughs> you know, oh dear, oh dear, what on earth are you going to serve up? You know. <laughs> uh, uh, I'd like to move on to to friendship. Probably the second to last segment. Um, I'm reading a novel. That's lent to me by James, actually, my teacher James Kirby. It's called "An Equal Music" by Vikram Seth. Oh yes, have you have you read? I it? think I have. Yes, I'm not sure if you remember. There's a line in the first. I think it's to do with a quartet. That's right. Yes, and there was a line in the first few chapters that really caught my attention. They were rehearsing with their quartet. I think it was must have been Haydn because the quote was referenced to Haydn. And it said, um, we all love Haydn, Haydn makes us love each other. Has music ever brought you closer with someone? Or started a, a friendship? Your mutual love of music, of the same type of music? This is a very, very important question. Um, this, is, this is a really, I, I really need to, Yes. Think about that. Uh, I mean, I have found sharing music very difficult. But I, I, I this is, I, I can share it in teaching. I think more more than any other way, because <laughs> I'm 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 paid to share it as a winner. But it's not not as simple as that. I'm at some level. I'm embarrassed by sharing music. It's so private. I I have a long conversation with my wife. We have, to, you know, she loves listening to music at a certain time of day, six, uh, you know, with a drink at six o'clock in the evening. I don't. That's the time I absolutely don't want to. So there's a little conflict on that one, and it's 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 I. I Sitting down and listening to music. So I would put on a record for a student where I would not put a record down on for myself. Um, now, does that answer your question? I'm much more comfortable sharing in that way. And yes, I suppose it does bring me closer. But there is a... You've touched on something with regard to me, which is um, a bit unresolved. You see, I, I my... Love of Gregorian chant, for example, is that has brought me close to monastic communities in a very, a very particular and I would say very profound way. Um, and there are some students who are working at who worked at pieces that we both. Uh, it, it's really thrillingly exciting because they both, they respond in exactly this, and that's that is wonderful. Yes, and that yes, you're. I mean, it does. There is a. There is a bond and a closeness, uh, in a part shared. You know that 
that's the stuff you know that's great it's it's a, it's a lovely warm moment but it, i do uh, when the lesson's over and i'm on to the next thing it's i won't say erased but it's um it's very compartmentalized um i think this is a very significant thing and i this is one of the things I want to express much better than I am doing now. See, performing has been a, an intensely private thing one has to do in public. And so I've had to sort of clothe it in, in, a, in a, a mantle of, of exuberance and, and showmanship to conceal the vulnerability, really. Uh, because that comes to me more naturally than wishing to express what I want to express, as it were, or wishing to share what I want to share. I'm sort of embarrassed. I, 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 it, it's a sort of almost a deflection. Yes, I want you to hear what I have to say, but, you know, cheerfully waving kind of thing. And um, it's a very interesting, a very interesting question which I need to think about. Um, I envy a number of my colleagues. Uh, 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 they're on, their names are on my lips, but I, I feel it's imprudent, probably. But I, I, I'm, it might be arrogant for me to think that they don't have such feelings. But I can think of people who just seem to play uncomplicatedly for the pleasure of it. They can read through a piece, mug it up, repeat it a few times, and you know, off they go. And I I rejoice in that, I, 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 and I feel that that's that's how it should be, but it never has been for me. Um, I've not been able to do that. And there's a sort of feeling, Anthony, sadness perhaps possibly that that I, I should have been able to do it, but something in me blocked it, or didn't allow it at some level, or didn't actually want it. I think being an artist, being an innate artist is a, a complicated life. I think it? it's an enormous complication. See, I, I fight shy of that. I couldn't, I, I feel embarrassed to be thought of as an artist or even think, talk of myself as an artist. It's, it's, a, it's a job of work. Who was it who said it was a job of work? I, I had the great good fortune of meeting one of the great actresses of the last century, Dame Flora Robson. And she was long retired, but I met her because I was doing Carnival of the Animals and she was narrating the Ogden Nash first, which often can go with it. And I was doing it with Peter Catin, who was a wonderful help to me. He was a big name in those days, Peter Catin. And we were doing, about 1974, Carnival of the Animals. And I got to know... Uh, her then and she was lovely she was in her 80s she long retired from stage and film and she I think she rather liked young men to be honest which was now fine suited me well and um, so she invited me down to her house in Brighton uh, um, for, for lunch and she talked about all the great actors of the day and uh, Gilgood and um, Laurence Olivier, 
Tyrone Guthrie. She she was and how it was filming in the nineteen thirties. I mean, my goodness me, to be party to all this stuff. I I was so young and green. I didn't really take it all in. But I do remember her saying, because I, I, I think I asked silly, fatuous questions like, did you get nervous? And how do you remember your lines? <laughs> um, and she said, well, you know, waiting in the wings. She, she was a woman of deep faith. She said, I, I say to the Lord, I've done my work. Now you do yours. <laughs> and I've always rather liked that. Yeah. In other words, it is. And Gordon Green used to say, "Performing is a lottery. It's an absolute lottery. It's 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 a real. It can be a real bummer because you can walk on the stage, feeling prepared and good, and, and really right up to the moment, you actually put the keys down and just suddenly it hits you. Uh, and then that which is awful. Other times, and I've had it. I've felt, oh my God, I really don't know. I, what am I doing here? wobble to the piano and feel as, as absolutely rock solid and it just uh, before i know um it, it's finished it's over and it's um i remember that happened in with the concerto the bliss piano concerto which i i did at the fairfield hall and i just and it's a hugely complicated work and i the first time out and from memory and i remember thinking i just this is it's fine it's fine and Again, it can be bad when you think, well, at the end of a concert, that was that was, I, I that was as bad as good as I can do and better than I deserve. And I that, I feel, okay, that was, and it was recorded, and you think, well, I, I I could bear to hear that. I think I'll I might listen to that, and it's awful. <laughs> I've had that experience of thinking, well, that was not the, not a bad job, and listen to it, not long after, thinking that's absolutely terrible. How could I think that was so good? Uh, and conversely, I, I've come off thinking, oh, God, that was pretty, the BBC won't want that. And then I hear the broadcast and think, oh, well, now that bit's coming where, I, oh, oh, didn't even hear it. So it's, it's so many, many things. Gordon Green used to say that one's best performances are often when you're the most attached. And it's as though you're in a control box. And you're, you're the lighting engineer, you're the producer, you're the director, you're the prompt lighting engineer. You're doing all these things quite consciously, a bit more lighting here. Don't forget your lines there. You've got to move over there and all this. And you just see this thing happening and then it's over and there's applause and you're walking off. And that, that's happened to me on one two occasions and it has gone well. I think it's, it is true. It's when people flail around and sort of feel the music and be <laughs> terribly artistic, ghastly, <laughs> frightful stuff. And of course, you know, people, students copy all this stuff, all the gestures and the snorting and the shifting and the wiping their feet on the floor and stamping the pedals. And this just, it just all goes unchecked. And they get roars of applause for really shocking, shocking stuff that shouldn't be allowed. Mm. The movements don't seem to translate. Well, no, I, it, I find this excess movement has now become really, it's, it's really terrible. And also this sort of mincing conducting of the hand you see quite often when there's a solo bit in the right. It's, it's, it's yeah. terrible. Yeah. It's, it's very prevalent. But uh, teachers don't seem to check it or even be aware of it. Mm. Mm. How did you meet Shura Jokaski? Hmm. 
Ah, well, sure. How did I meet him? Yeah. Good question. I think I must have gone backstage to some of his concerts, but the the uh, it, it's what I what I remember is inviting him, so I must have known him or met him somewhere before. But when I really got to know him was when mm. I gave a Queen Elizabeth Hall recital. And even as I say this, you see, I feel I'm talking about somebody else. I think, did I do that? <laughs> And what's more, I played all the Chopin waltzes in the first half. I mean, can you imagine? <laughs> and in the second half, Rachmaninoff's second piano sonata, in the original version. Well, I, 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 I anyway, um, Shorchkowski came to the concert, and he came backstage, and he was very, very. I'm embarrassed to say it, but he he was why can't I say he he really loved it. I've never said that to anybody. I've always sort of tried to dress it up. But he he was, and he he asked me. He said, Philip, um, he had a slightly drawly. I can't imitate him. Slightly drawly, camp American accent, um, New York. Uh, Philip, are you English? And um, sure, no, 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 sure, I'm not English. Are you sure you're not English? And I said, I'm absolutely sure. And he, he, he sort of shook his head. Well, you don't play like an Englishman. <laughs> and um, I, I've always taken that as a compliment and I'm, to my distinguished English peers who might be watching me. Um, please forgive me, fair <laughs> colleagues. Um, but that is what he said. And um, I, I rather treasure that, I have to say. Uh, and then after that, he used to invite me to the White House Hotel, which is where he had a, a room, um, a tiny little room at the corner of a corridor. And he, he had a little model of Steinway, closed, of course, with all his music on top and velvet curtains. And it was just, you know. And that's where he did all his, his work. Um, and we I remember we walked into Regent's Park and um, he... His conversation was a little limited. He loved talking about travel, um, aeroplane timetables. He he was encyclopedic about that kind of thing. And I again, I asked him sort of rather fatuous questions like, um, "Do you have any tips about practicing and uh, and that kind of thing?" And he did. Um, he said two things which have always struck me, and I think. Are, disappointed me at the time, but I've reflected them over the years. I think they're wonderful. And they're, he said these two things. Uh, if you heard me practice, you wouldn't think I could play the piano. <laughs> yes. Um, and I, I remember him saying that. I, I, except he, the first thing he said is, have you ever heard me play the uh, practice? I said, no, sure, I haven't heard you play the practice. If you thought, you know, that's when he said that. Um, and I, I love that because it's so true. I like to say to students, if I recognize what you're practicing if I pass your room in the college, you're not practicing. Um, and the other thing he said was um, oh, about practicing four for, for hours to the absolute second. But the other tip he, he um, gave me, he said, well, and he thought a bit, and I think he did a gesture rather like this. He said, I, I play every note right in the middle. <laughs> and I remember thinking, I'm talking to one of the great pianists of the 20th century. This could be the sort of thing you'd give a child 
for its first lesson, you know, finger on the middle of middle C kind of stuff. Mm. Um, but when you watch him playing, and of course, it's, uh, it's, 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 um, but he didn't say much else. He, he was just one of these instinctive musicians. And I can remember Jimmy Gibb, whom James would remember, wonderful man, wonderful musician, incredible wit. He told me a story of, um, Shura phoned him up saying, Jimmy, could you come round and run a concerto for me? It was something quite complex, like Prokofiev II or something really toughy, I seem to remember. And uh, Jimmy went round and, and went through. And Shura said, right, I want to go through the concerto twice because I haven't done it before. I haven't done it for years. And he, the first time, uh, he said, I want to do it very, very slowly. So Jimmy laboriously went through the thing really slowly um, and uh, I think he had the music even I think he was going through with the music and they went through and waded through the thing and then sure up had a glass of water or something and then said right okay and then played it and uh, through from memory and um, Jimmy said it was simply wonderful you know, absolutely, just just went through it. I mean, that's genius. That's genius. Another person who had that level of genius was John Ogden, and I can remember Gordon Green telling me, telling us, that um, you know he he had a photographic memory, and when he was going over, flying over to Moscow, he was sort of memorizing scores on the plane, that kind of thing. But it was his he 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 was certainly autistic. I would say on the, on the, more than on the spectrum. Um, uh, but uh, a genius and of course people think that you know if you're autistic you can be emotionally uh, have difficulties which is perfectly true but i've 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 seen and heard autistic people who are actually known to be autistic um and they can play extremely expressively you give them an instrument but they can't communicate verbally uh, in the same way but the moment they touch the keyboard it reduces you to tears so it's it's a very complex thing, but I sure certainly had it, and he could move me to tears. Um, John Ogden could play beautifully, of course, as we know. But that level, it, it's it's an extraordinary gift. Um, and we're coming back to the the whole business of talent. But that's how I got to know Shura Chikaski, and uh, he was. Um, I was going to say he's a complex man, but I, I'm I'm not so sure. But he was a very lonely and a very unhappy man. He was one of the few people I can really cite who got, who simply got better and better and better and better. And if you hear his last recording live, and it was so much of him, of course, fortunately, on YouTube, I mean, right up, right up to the end, he was playing immaculately. Absolutely. Hmm. Was there anything about him, about his sort of social side that impressed you? social side yeah not so not on the on, on the stage or with the piano just this on this sort well, of I think side. I've got to be a bit careful here I think uh, this is uh, uh, I mean sure uh, he, he he loved his friends he liked he liked being in touch um, he liked he liked being with the people that, that, that he knew he was very he got very easy he used to say I get so <laughs> when people talk about um, music or ask him what he's doing, he just gets so bored. He, I don't think he was a man who was interested in 
literature or conversation. He, he lived he lived for the piano and for audiences. An audience, give sure an audience, and he was where he had to be. But if, it, it, he was truly at home on stage. I remember him saying he used to have to, all his little, um, he was very superstitious and he had to have so many steps to the piano from, from the, when he walked from the, you know, green room to the piano. It always had to be a certain number of steps. And um, he always liked certain things backstage. Ice cream, I think, was one of it, and masses of tissue paper and grapes, you know, things like that. Well, that's we all, I think that's all, all good and wholesome stuff, but he was very superstitious. I do remember him telling that. And he was really more interested in the piano stool than the piano. The piano if the piano stool wasn't right, he was he got very distressed. But um, he didn't really mind about the piano, but the piano stool was very important. <laughs> Yeah, I think he also used to, when you walked on stage, it was always the right foot first or left. It was, yeah, it was that kind of a thing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I must say that for me, I dread it when people say, who's your favourite pianist all this. But I, I, I can truthfully say that, um, you know, he's, 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 he's my desert island pianist, really. Of course, I also got to know Eileen Joyce very well. Um, and th that's another story and a great privilege. Um as she was. My heart goes out to her, even at the time, because I got to know her when I was really getting pretty big time. I met her when I did the Island Concerto. And of course, she'd recorded it in 1940. Mm. And she'd also played it at the proms in 1949, on the occasion of Ireland's 70th birthday. <gasps> a year younger than I am now. And um, I got a recording of that too, of the of her performance of that. So when I was asked to do it in 1979 for the um, 100th anniversary of Ireland's birth, uh, she was very interested. And we had a mutual friend, so it was through. And uh, she came to my studio in Pimlico and heard me play it through on two pianos. So that was a wonderful thing. Then she invited me down to her house, which was then Chartwell Manor Farm in Kent. And uh, a very dear friendship blossomed and I used to go and see her often and she'd long since stopped playing but she'd had a brief comeback in 1967 which I believe was not an entire success but I've, I've I don't know much about it it was at the Albert Hall and she did Rack 2 but I think it might have been alright but I think she was just it was she was not comfortable and um so 1967, I'm talking about 1980 or so, and I used to go down and she gave two, um, she wanted to play the piano, but she would only do it if I was a duet with her, a duet or two pianos. She would do that. And it was incredible because I, I could see her fingers still, with those amazing Annie Joyce fingers. But although they were terribly straightforward little concerts um, in, in my friend's home down in um, Sussex, Kent rather, you know, with just local people, like giving one here. She was a, absolutely in a state, you know, she was absolutely you know, drenched with sweat, you know, and all the rest of it. And I thought, mm, there's a story here, there's a story here. And we th did things like Scaramouche and Jamaican Rumba and uh, Entry of the Queen of Sheba. I mean, the real, just, she, she would do those. Um, Oh, the Walton facade, um, the um, waltz for the 
dum ba dum ba dum ba dum ba dum. Very clever arrangement. She liked doing that. Um, but I sensed then that her career, which had been, she was something of a latter day Van Cliven. You know, she had this, not that she won a competition, but she had this meteoric rise. Um, and then the war came and she was playing three, four concertos a night up and down the country and all the rest of it. A huge repertoire. And then she got back problems. And and by the by the 50s, she was struggling a bit and she started playing the harpsichord and trying to find other avenues. And it all began to, to, to not quite work. And then by the time, 1960, when she was in, well, only 50, she announced that she called it a day. Um, but I always sensed that she, um, it had been a struggle for her, for all the glitter, glamour and success. And I, 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 I don't know, I might be rewriting my, my feelings and her feelings in the light of what I feel now. But I sense there was a very strong rapport between us. Cause I, I, perhaps it's because I like to feel that she could see in me an ambivalence. Um, which I certainly was, but I was trying to concede it. I, I wish we could talk all day, but I'm going to get to yeah. the last question now. Okay. Um, it's been a pleasure. Well, I'm talking far too much. But a lot of interesting stuff. Mm. Um, I'm sorry about that noise. No, 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 it's okay. Um, in your successful and long career in music, is there a piece of music that you feel or pieces of music that you feel like they were written especially for you, physically and musically? You just felt at one with the piece, or was there no such thing? Yes, the Grieg Piano Concerto. Now, I'm sure many people would um, say that as well. Uh, but I think the Grieg, and second to the Grieg, would be the Pagani Rhapsody. Um, it's like a warm glove. <laughs> I know that feeling. Lucky you. <laughs> Maybe that will change. Hmm? Maybe that will change. <laughs> oh, I don't know. I think so. Oh, for, oh, piano music, yeah. Mm. But um, it's funny, I, I, I sometimes fantasize about... Um, my funeral, um, it's a rather strange thing to fantasize about, I might say, but if I were to have a funeral, if I were to have music, what would I have? Um, and I've thought about it and even drafted a list, but you know, I'm not so sure that I want anything. What I'd like is silence. Philip, thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs>